Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. We welcome you this day, this MLK Day 21, to not only honor the man, but also to remember his message and to be encouraged by his ministry and the movement called the Civil Rights Movement. My name is Dr. Chris Williamson, and I am the senior pastor of Strong Tower Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ by being a Bible-based, multi-dimensional fellowship of believers. Our vision at Strong Tower is to experience, explain, and expand God's diverse kingdom in the city and throughout the world. Our church embodies Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, when Paul talks about, for in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. We are one, even though we are not the same. And the only reason that I've been able to pastor Strong Tower Bible Church, an intentional, multiracial, multi-economic church for 25 years in the South is because of the grace of God, the calling of God, and the example of Dr. Martin Luther King. You see, we can read the Bible and know that God's heart has always been for inclusivity and diversity operating in unity. Going all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abram to be the father of many nations, and all the way to the book of Revelation, where John the apostle said that he saw before the throne a, a mixed multitude of people from every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue. And I thank God for what the Bible says and how Jesus says that he is calling people to come from the north and the south to sit down at the table with Abraham. So God's heart has always been for diversity, inclusivity, and unity. And, but Dr. King put it into a real uh, way for me to see it for myself. The Bible is true, but I needed some examples to see that what is true can become reality. And through his message and his ministry and, of course, the movement, we got to see diversity, inclusivity, unity for the sake of justice and equality for all. And so Strong Tower Bible Church was able to see what happened on August 28, 1963, when Dr. King gave that message right there in Washington, D.C., to a mixed multitude of people, upwards of 250,000 people as he talked about the sons of former slaves and former slave owners coming together at the table of brotherhood. Without that dream, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing today. I am standing on the shoulders of giants, men and women who went before, who paved the way, who were trailblazers, who put their necks and even their bodies on the line, that I can stand here and enjoy some level of freedom in America, some level of equality in America, and be able to lead a group of people like I lead here in Nashville, Tennessee. And I don't know if there has ever been a more significant time, a more significant moment for an MLK Day to be celebrated than right now. With all of the racial unrest in our country, the political unrest in our country, we need to be reminded of this message and this man that we may be able to go forward in a spirit of power. You see, today, we're going to tell you about the dreamer. We're also going to tell you about the dream. But I have speakers today who are coming who are going to tell you things about the dream that often get overlooked because so many are looking for a sanitized version of Dr. King. 
But the men and women who are going to grace this stage today, they're going to tell you about the true Dr. King. They're going to tell you about the militant Dr. King. The Dr. King who not only stood for unity, but of course the Dr. King who stood for justice and equality for all. You see, America needs Dr. King's true voice today. And America needs your true voice today. So as you listen today, I pray that not only will you be inspired, but I pray that you will be motivated to be a difference maker wherever you are, uh, whoever you may be around, that you will let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory and honor to your Father above. You see, today we are here to remember history, but we're also here today to make history. And we're also here today to make sure that you and I are on the right side of history. Because there are so many people who said, if I would have lived during the time of Dr. King, I surely would have marched with him and all of the devotees of the civil rights movement. I, I would have been front row marching. Well, if we look at what you're doing now, it's a great indicator of what you would have done back then. So if you're not on the right side, today is the day to begin getting on the right side, which means you may have to leave some people. It may mean you're going to have to leave some churches. It may mean you're going to have to leave some ideologies and philosophies behind as you move towards the truth and move towards the light. You see, today we want to remember and honor not only Dr. King, but also Coretta Scott King, his wife and widow. Uh, because she is the founder of the King Center in Atlanta, Georgia, which started less than three months after her husband was assassinated in Memphis. She started the King Center and the legacy, and she also fought for him to be remembered through a national holiday. And so we wouldn't be here today without her work in the movement and many, many women who were also frontline and a part of the movement. And one woman in particular that we will speak to today, that is Mahalia Jackson. That great gospel artist, Mahalia Jackson, the first gospel artist to receive a Grammy Award, Mahalia Jackson, who mentored Aretha Franklin, Mahalia Jackson, who was the soundtrack of the civil rights movement. Her voice not only calmed a nation, but every now and then it would calm a king. What am I talking about? Dr. King and Mahalia Jackson had a wonderful relationship. Uh, she goes all the way back to the Montgomery bus boycott when she lent her voice and her prestige to that movement uh, in order to gain equality on the buses that Sister Rosa Parks sparked when she said, I, I ain't getting up from my seat. I'm going to uh, protest by sitting down. And the movement began because Sister Rosa Parks had the courage to sit down. And Mahalia Jackson came and gave her vocal uh, ability and, and her beautiful ability to sing to the movement. And she and Dr. King uh, developed a great friendship. So much so that when he would go into the South, into all of those places that hated black people, that hated the message of justice that Dr. King preached, that she would oftentimes sing at the rallies. She would sing at the churches because before they would go out onto the streets, they would have church inside the building and they would worship and get set on fire, but they didn't stay in the building. They took it to the streets. And so thank God for Christians who just don't stay in the church, but Christians who are willing to get fired up in the church and then take it to the streets. They took it to the streets. 
And so there would be times where Mahalia would go before him. But then there would be times where he would not be with her. He would even be at home. And he would struggle, as many leaders do. He would deal with depression and discouragement and doubt and weariness. And so after he would talk to the Lord about it, sometimes he would get on the phone and call Mahalia Jackson and just ask her to sing a song so that his spirit might be calmed through worship. Oh, yeah, that's the kind of relationship they had. And so when he was preparing, going to Washington, D.C., 1963, to give the speech on the March on Washington, they would have these pit stops along the way in Detroit and in Chicago where they would kind of work on their messages and what they were going to communicate on that day. And Dr. King was wrestling with a couple of different ideas on what he was going to preach on that stage on that day in 1963. Things that he would try out in this city, try out in that city. And he wasn't sure which way he was going to go. And knowing that he was given only five minutes that day, he stuck with one part of the speech called uh, 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 the nation has given black America a bad check. So that's where he was going to stay. But he got caught up in the moment. Because he moved from being a lecturer to being a Baptist preacher. Oh, you, you don't hear me right now. So something happened because God was in that moment. That was a prophetic moment in American history. And as he was talking, and, and he knew there was more in him, and he wasn't sure if he could let it out, if it was going to be proper in the moment, there was a voice off to the side about 50 feet away who had heard Dr. King speak on many occasions. And she said, uh, Martin, tell him about the dream. <laughs> Martin, tell him about the dream. He wasn't going to tell them about the dream, something that he had spoken on in other places before, but, but he wasn't going to use that that day. But Mahalia said, Martin, tell them about the dream. And at that point, homeboy moved away from his notes and began to preach from his heart in the tradition of the Black Baptist Church. And he reached crescendos and heights that we have never seen before on the public stage. And he said more in a few minutes than many folks say in a whole lot of minutes. God used him that day to give a vision to America to show America what America can be. And so we're just here today to just tell folks about the dream. And again, we're going to tell folks parts about the dream that oftentimes doesn't get quoted. As people want to run to uh, don't judge people by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, and they take that out of context. We're going to talk about when King talked about police brutality. We're going to talk about when King talked about unfair incarceration. We're going to talk about economic inequality, the things that he talked about that don't often get elevated because folks are looking for a sanitized Dr. King. They're looking for a Dr. King who looks black on the outside, but really he sounds like a white man talking. But no, 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 we're going to promote the true Dr. King today because I got some fiery folks that's going to grace this stage and inspire all of us today. Coming after me is my son in the faith, Minister Cleon Harrison of West Harpeth Primitive Baptist Church. Following Cleon will be Courtney Cochter, who is an author and a mother and a leader, and she happens to be a member of Strong Tower Bible Church. She is on fire for the Lord. Following Courtney will come Tricia Alicia, 
who is a wonderful gospel artist, who is going to give us one of Mahalia Jackson's songs today. So you don't want to miss that. And she will be accompanied by Brother Charles Sanders. Following Trisha Alicia will be Brother Bryant Herbert, who is the pastor of New Birth Seven-Day Adventist Church, and he's also the co-founder of the Franklin Justice and Equity Coalition, and the brother is on fire. And then following Pastor Herbert will be my brother, my friend, my homie, Pastor Walter Simmons of the Empowerment Community Church and also co-founder of the Franklin Justice and Equity Coalition, and my, 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 and he is, I call him the Bishop of Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, God has put a word in this man's mouth, and you just better be ready for it. He, he, he is a pastor with a prophetic mantle. You, you, you better watch out. And then we're going to have a reading by one of our children. Because just like with Jesus, Jesus incorporated children into his sermons. Jesus incorporated children into his ministry. Dr. King learned from Jesus and incorporated children into the movement and into the ministry. And so today we've incorporated a child. And we have today Wyatt Cocter, who is going to give us a reading from a Pulitzer Prize book, children's book, that speaks of Dr. King. And uh, Wyatt comes to us all the way from Uganda, and he is a citizen of the United States, and he is a son of Dustin and Courtney Cocter, and I am Wyatt's pastor. Oh, so you better watch out because I might be looking at the future pastor of Strong Tower Bible Church because he's going to stand right here and give a reading today. And last but not least, to close out our program today will be my wife, Darina Williamson, who is an author, who is a leader. Uh, 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 who is a, a she, she's, she's a woman of action, as well as fine as wine. Lord, thank you, G. I'm going to try to pay attention while I'm watching her speak. Oh, Lord, thank you. But anyway, let me get my composure back, and I'm going to read to you from Amos chapter 5 as we begin this program. One of Dr. King's most favorite passages of Scripture that he would quote in many of his sermons. And Amos chapter 5, beginning at verse 21, reads, and this is God saying, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. So God is saying, I don't want to hear all of the noise from your gatherings all of your conventions, all of your conferences, all of your church events. You're giving me this worship, but you're not touching and reaching people in a real way and setting captives free. I don't want to hear it until you do that. I don't want to hear it until you be about justice and mercy. And that's what Dr. King would say time and time again, but let justice run down like river and righteousness like a mighty stream. And as he quoted that in 1963, and as the prophet Amos said that many centuries before Christ, here we are in 2021, still crying out for justice. 
which is the heart of our God, justice. So let us pray today. Father, it is our prayer that this would not be just another event, that this would not be just another observance of Dr. King's life. But God, we pray that in this moment you would visit us, even as you visited the crowd in 1963 when Dr. King first gave I Have a Dream on the national stage. Lord, it was a euphoric moment. It was a transcendent moment. And I pray that not only in this moment in Strong Tower with all of my friends here, but I pray, Lord God, for uh, these services going on across the country right now, that, Lord, you would visit these places with your Shekinah glory, your felt presence, that, Lord, we would be moved to action, that we would be broken by the things that we see and trust that it is your heart to bring repair and restitution in the land and that you would raise us up to be your servants, your agents of change in this moment. So, Lord, I pray that you would do uh, something that is beyond anything that we could ever comprehend, imagine, or even ask. Lord, again, we know this is your heart, justice, for us to treat all men and women fairly and properly. So, thank you, God. Use this moment. We dedicate it to you right now, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray, and everybody watching said, amen, amen. At this time, coming to the platform is my son, Minister Cleon Harrison. We good? Okay. Yeah, I want to thank my father, Brother Christopher, Pastor Christopher Williamson, for this opportunity. We're looking and we're celebrating today Dr. King's day, celebrating his birthday, his life, his message, his ministry. And as I sit and I listen to a lot of people year after year eulogize Dr. King, saying all these great things about him and well-deserving, it's obvious that a lot of times they still don't get it. When I sit there and I look at his speech, um, I have a dream speech, he answers a question that that is asked to him by white people is, When will it ever be enough? When will you be satisfied? Or when will y'all be satisfied? And Dr. King says, we will not be satisfied as long as Negroes are the victims of the horror of police brutality. He said, we will not be satisfied as long as our children is is stripped from their selfhood and their dignity by going to places that say white for whites only. He said, we will not be satisfied while the Negro in Mississippi can't vote and the Negro in New York feels there's no reason for which he should vote. He said, in other words, we will not be satisfied as long as you keep treating one group of people one way and another group of people another way. We will not be satisfied as one group is seen as inferior and another group is seen superior. And once when we think we got it, and we think that white people have grabbed hold to it and others have grabbed it, the more we listen to them, we see that they still just don't get it. When I listened a few years ago to Dabo Sweeney, someone who bragged and talked about the type of man Martin Luther King is and how he protested and how wonderful of a man he is and he's someone you would want to follow, he's someone he would follow, in the exact same breath, he turns around and criticizes Colin Kaepernick 
for taking a stand and fighting the same fight of the man you just said you will follow. Colin Kaepernick and Martin Luther King both is fighting for the same thing we've been fighting for for centuries, and that is to treat everybody fairly and to treat everybody right. See, Martin Luther King ain't asking for special treatment of black people. Colin Kaepernick ain't asking for special treatment of black people. Pastor Chris Williamson ain't asking for special treatment of black people. Pastor Walter Simmons ain't asking for special treatment of black people. Pastor Brian Herbert ain't asking for special treatment of black people. What they're asking is treat everybody the same. Or in the words of Shannon Sharp, if you're not going to, we're not asking you to treat white people like black people, but can you at least treat black people like white people? In other words, we don't want you to treat white people like black people and shoot them up for no reason. We want you to treat black people like white people and don't be shooting us up for no cause. We don't want you to treat white people like black people and arrest them for no reason at all and have some trumped up charges and give them unfair sentences. We want you to treat black people like white people and give us fair sentences and arrest us when we actually commit a crime. We're not asking you to treat white, black people like white people. I mean, white people like black people. We're asking you to treat black people like white people, and that is to treat them fairly. It's not a lot to ask when we look at the social justice in these yet-to-be-United States, in the divided states of America. We're asking that people get treated right. And when we think they have it, it seems that they don't. I remember in the movie, uh, Remember the Titans, one of my favorite movies, and there's a scene in there because we say that when we saw all the stuff that happened at the Capitol a couple weeks ago, then all of a sudden you hear the Republicans and a lot of whites saying, enough is enough. We're done with this. Trump got to go. Enough is enough. We didn't think it was this bad. You did know it was that bad. We've been telling you for four years. We told you when he was running, listening to the stuff he said, his character and the type of person he was, we told you the stuff was bad. We told you it would get like this way, but y'all didn't listen to us. And then all of a sudden, it, when it finally hit home, when their safety was invaded, when their safety was in danger, now all of a sudden, the Republicans are screaming out, enough is enough. Like I was in the movie, remember the Titans, PD them, they was going to the restaurant. And Sunshine was the white quarterback. PD was the black running back, tailback, or whatever move he was in with his only child syndromes. <clears throat> they was going to this restaurant. PD said, you know what, this here Virginia. And over here, man, people like me ain't accepted in this restaurant. And Sunshine said, come on in. So they go in, empty tables everywhere. And what happens, the white owner comes up and say, we're full. Sunshine's like, no, man, this table's everywhere. He said, this is my establishment, and I refuse service whoever I want. Check this out, what he said to him and how he viewed them. He said, you boys can go out back and eat from the garbage in the back. They ain't no strays. They ain't no dogs. They ain't no rats. They, he looked at them not as human but as animals and then told Sunshine, you can go back there with them, old hippie boy. Since you want to defend and be with them, you can get treated just the way we treat them. And they get outside. Petey gets upset with Sunshine. And Blue is like, calm down, Petey. He didn't know. Petey said, Blue, how's it? He didn't know. I told him. It's not that he didn't know, Blue. He don't want to know. And the problem with white America, what's been happening and why we struggle, is not that y'all don't know. Y'all didn't want to know. Because we told you time and time again, and all of this stuff happens because people sit there and put their head in the sand and ignore it because things don't hit home until they hit home. W.E.B. Du Bois said that to be black in America, we have to live with a double conscience. 
And when we think about the double conscience, he said, because you're brought over here, we're brought over here in the land that's not our own. We're brought over here in a country that's not our own in shackles with people that set up on our demise and destruction because they look at themselves as superior and they look at us as inferior. Now, if you are over here in this country because we have to learn how to navigate our color through this culture. But when you think you're a black Christian, not only do we have a double conscience, we also have a dual nature. Because now, not only are we trying to be unconscious, dealing with the stuff on the outside, trying to learn how to navigate our color with this culture, we also have a dual nature on the inside. Because we have our sin nature or our flesh or our old self, whatever you feel comfortable calling with. But now we've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and it gives us a new nature. And sometimes when we see the things, our new nature sometimes conflict with our old nature. Sometimes my sin nature conflicts with my new nature. Sometimes my flesh conflicts with my faith. Sometimes my ratchetness conflicts with my righteousness. Or to sum it up, the Cleon in me sometimes conflicts with the Christ in me. Because when I sit there and we see the stuff that happened at the, at the uh, national capitol a couple weeks ago, how they just go and ransack the capitol, and they did it with no conscience. They did it with no fear of repercussions. They did it. With, they went in there with pipe bombs, guns. They had on bandanas. They had Confederate flags. They, and then some of them even had on Jesus Saves T-shirts. Lord Jesus. They even had the nerve to wear that. And like Erica Gentry posted on Facebook, if it was black people, we wouldn't even made it to the steps. We wouldn't even made it there. And yet they sit there and our country don't see the constant racial divide that this country and this society is ingrained with. And we get upset and we get frustrated because they sitting there and they say, well, we didn't know. We didn't know. Yes, you did know. You just didn't want to know. and You didn't want to take the steps to help see change made. And then here we are, we sit there, and I struggle sometimes even with us because now Kamala Harris comes on the scene, and she now has the opportunity to make history to not only be the first woman to hold the office of president or vice president, but a woman of color. And what do we say? Black people start talking about she ain't black enough. She ain't black enough. We know she did some stuff as a prosecutor that we didn't agree with. We know she did and said some things as a prosecutor that bothered us. But we sit there and say she's not black enough. We don't need white folks to tear us down because we do a good enough job of tripping one another up with the same race that we're supposed to be running. And we say she ain't black enough, but this is the same black community. We're the same ones who accepted Bill Clinton as the first black president all because he did this. He smoked weed and got oral sex in the over office from his mistress and not his wife, and we claim him as our first black president. And yet we say Kamala Harris ain't Kamala Harris ain't black enough. Oh, we let me tell you, if we in the black community, you want to know who ain't black enough? If you ain't taking care of your kids, you ain't black enough. If you selling drugs in your own community to your own people, you ain't black enough. If you don't vote because you feel you don't have a voice when our sister Stacey Abrams killed that notion, you ain't black enough. If you're okay with the state taking care of your kids and you having one baby after another, you ain't black enough. If you living in your daddy's house, driving your mama car, spending your girlfriend money, you ain't black enough. If you want to sit there and associate laziness and being uneducated and being ignorant with being black, then you ain't black enough. We have to sit there and understand. When we talk about Dr. King's dream, he was the epitome of what it means to be black. He was educated. He was spoke well. He didn't have no thugness about him. And they talk about, well, Dr. King didn't fight back. 
All he did was fight back. He just fought back in a smart way. When you talk about Rosa Parks, he fought back because he responded and not reacted. He organized, helped them organize a boycott. Well, that's when black people stuck and worked together. And we went over 300 some days with walking uh, uh, our people, uh, uh, carpooling and doing whatever because we believed in one another. Y'all understand the fact that when uh, Dr. King was one who didn't bother doing what he needed to do because he knew God had his back. He read Deuteronomy 31.5 when God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He read Hebrews 13.5 when he said, the Lord Jesus Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. He knew what he read Joshua 1.5 when God told Joshua, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. He read Matthew 28.20 when Jesus told the disciples, lo, I'm with you always. And Dr. King held on to those promises because he knew that no matter what he was going through, no matter how stressful the situation, it would never permanently rock his foundation because his foundation was built on Jesus Christ, on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And he knew that he would never leave God. And if he wanted to walk away from God, he knew God would come after him in the words of those theologians, the temptations. I know you want to leave me, but I refuse to let you go. When we think about those things, and we knew we had that battle. Y'all heard the saying, well, you got uh, uh, two natures in my chest. One is fire, one is blessed. One I love, the other I hate. The one I feed most will dominate. What do we feed? Do we feed our faith or your fear? Do we feed our strength or do we feed our weakness? Do we feed false realities? Do we feed false fantasies or real realities? What is it that we feed the most? Because whichever one we feed is what's going to dominate. Let me close with this. Because I'm sure my 10 minutes is about up. <laughs> my man Sherman Smith, in his testimony, he tells a story about his dad uh, when he was a junior in high school. His dad said, son, what you want to do when you graduate? And Sherman said, you know, I want to work at the steel mill and I want to live in these apartments. I think they was projects or something. And then I want to go and drive me a nice Pinto. Well, Sherman didn't say what type of car it was, but I'm going to say Pinto for the sake of the story. And his dad was grieved at listening to his son tell him that. And he said, son, come on and go with me. And so Sherman said how his daddy took him around and took him to the uh, steel mill and said, son, don't be, don't be the one. And then he took it. No, don't buy the lie. Then he took him down by the uh, 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 apartments or the project complex and said, don't buy the lie. And then he took him around to the dealership and said, don't buy the lie. Because what scared the hell out of Mr. Smith was not that his son would aim high and miss. It's that his son would aim low and hit. And the problem with America is that we have aimed low and hit. Because all we do is settle. When is good enough, good enough? Newsflash, good enough ain't never good enough. Good enough ain't good enough when it can be better, and better ain't good enough when it can be best. And America, instead of America always aiming high and missing, America aims low and hit every darn time. When you separate kids from their parents, America, you've aimed low and hit. When you want to spend almost $200 billion a year to house and for incarceration in America, you've aimed low and hit. When you can sit there and let people that represent 
uh, fascism or nationalism or racism, or if we want to sum it up in one word, Trumpism, run up into the Capitol with no remorse and destroy and don't even worry about repercussions. America, you've aimed low and missed and hit. And we want to sit there and look at how our, our society has come and our culture with the ingrained hatred, and we have done nothing, very little, made very little steps, America. We have aimed low and hit. Dr. King, you have a dream, and I'm sorry we have made some steps, but we had not made the strides we needed to make because if Dr. King, he may wake up thinking we in Disneyland only to find out we in Jurassic Park. He may wake up thinking that we fellowshipping on Little House on the Prairie and we still warring on Nightmare on M Street. But what we have to do is come together, get together, and live that dream together. morning. So I want to start this morning by acknowledging that nothing I am going to say today is completely original. As I was preparing what I wanted to say this morning, I pulled out my books written by James Cone, Howard Thurman, Donna Barber, and Esau McCauley. I re-listened to Tom Skinner. I pulled up notes I have saved from Pastor Chris, and I remembered ideas, words, phrases that were shared by other people. The words I am going to say today have been shaped by countless black voices. And so while I hope that what I share today can be encouraging as we honor Dr. King and move forward in this world, it is entirely unacceptable when white people get standing ovations for saying things that black people have been saying for forever. So today I want to talk on peace and peacemaking and being a peacemaker, and I want to be at best merely an echo. In 1956, in Louisville, Kentucky, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered a speech entitled, When Peace Becomes Obnoxious. He begins by talking about an edict that was handed down by a federal judge stating that the University of Alabama could no longer deny admission to a person because of their race. He goes on to say that a woman named Authorine Lucy was accepted as the first black student to be admitted to the, in the history of the University of Alabama. He describes her first moments on campus being met by a vicious group of outsiders who began threatening her on every hand. Crosses were burned, eggs and bricks were thrown at her, a mob jumped on top of the car she was riding in. After some time, the president and trustees of the University of Alabama asked Authorine to leave for her own safety and the safety of the campus. The following day, the paper released this headline. Things are quiet in Tuscaloosa today. There is peace on the campus of the University of Alabama. Dr. King stated, yes, things are quiet in Tuscaloosa. Yes, there was peace on the campus, but it was peace at a great price. It was peace that had been purchased at the exorbitant price of an inept trustee board succumbing to the whims and caprices of a vicious mob. It was peace that had been purchased at the price of allowing mobocracy to reign supreme over democracy. It was peace that had been purchased at the price of capitulating to the force of darkness. This is the type of peace that all men of goodwill hate. 
It is the type of peace that is obnoxious. It is the type of peace that stinks in the nostrils of the Almighty God. I grew up believing that a peacemaker was a person who was really calm, like quiet. A person who did not ask questions or rock the boat or challenge the status quo. A person who settled things down, who avoided conflict. I grew up believing that peace was the same. Quiet, a lack of noise, a lack of tension, a lack of conflict. Accepting things the way they were, again, not asking questions and not rocking the boat. And so for most of my life, I have left the peacemakers alone to do their own thing, as I am exactly zero of the characteristics I was taught a peacemaker was. And it wasn't until recently that I was invited to consider another way. And I wonder if maybe there are some of you who, like me, maybe never considered themselves to be peacemakers, not because you actually are not one, but rather because you were given an incomplete definition of the word and then encouraged to not ask questions. It turns out peacemaking is not the same thing as peacekeeping. Peacekeeping is a personality type, a temperament. Peacemaking is a bold, radical, active way of life. It is the work of bringing heaven to earth. Peacemaking is shalom, the active work of bringing goodness and justice to this world. There is nothing calm or quiet about it. Peacemakers are fighters. They are question askers, agitators, troublemakers, co-conspirators. They're disruptive, obnoxious, irritating, bothersome, a nuisance. Peacemaking is the practice of justice. It is truth-telling. It is paying attention. It is using your creative imagination as a revolutionary act of political resistance. It is an invitation to show up physically wherever injustice is. Peacemaking is calling injustice by its name. Peacemakers name it. They call it out. They say exactly what it is. White supremacy, domestic terrorism, or white terrorism, racial terrorism, white privilege, white power, white violence, police brutality or unfair policing, unequal sentencing, voter suppression, white Christian nationalism, or white supremacist Christianity. Peacemakers see, call out, and reject systems of oppression that are in fact not broken, but built that way. Peacemakers name it, and they walk towards imagining something new. They believe more is possible. They hope on behalf of a better world. Peacemakers are not afraid of something they have never seen before, something that has never been done before, but believe that the choices given to us by this world cannot be all there is. Peacemakers are more than sympathizers, more than mourners, more than continued shock and surprise. Peacemakers are more than the entirely false belief that this is not who we are, that this is not America. Peacemakers are more than a Twitter rant, more than a Facebook post, more than a book club, more than a panel discussion, more than a diversified bookshelf. Peacemakers are more than performative allyship, They're more than a black square posted on social media on a random Tuesday in June. 
Peacemakers are more than an out-of-context, out whitewashed MLK Jr. quote spouted off every January. Instead, peacemakers are reckoners, imaginers, liberators, chainbreakers, confronters, abolitionists, rebels, accomplices, responders, dismantlers. Peacemakers are willing to be misunderstood. They're willing to lay down power, give up control. Peacemakers are willing to listen to black people, believe black people, pay black people, and follow black people's lead. Peacemakers are willing to risk something, lose people, vote differently, pick a side. Peacemakers, they ask, what kind of world is possible and what does that require of me? And then they move towards that. Peacemakers refuse to use scripture as a means to silence, gaslight, justify, defend, oppress, intimidate, threaten, excuse, deceive, or violate. Peacemakers reject, rebuke, and denounce the use of scripture as a means to the continual oppression, assault, and manipulation of black and brown bodies, minds, and souls. Because the fact is, we serve a God who came to earth as a brown-skinned Middle Eastern Jew. He was poor. He was a refugee. He will one day save the world, and he will do that in part by willingly going to the cross and being murdered by the state. God could have chosen any way to express himself, and this is it. God created us with the ability to deconstruct oppressive theology. We are more than unquestioned obedience in the face of unjust systems, structures, churches, and people. And when I think of the ultimate radical peacemaker, I think of Jesus. And when I continue down the line, I get to Dr. King, whose faith compelled him to live a life of a peacemaker. And so to honor him today is to live a life of radical peacemaking. We do not honor him by being peacekeepers, by sitting on the sidelines, by being quiet, by staying silent. We don't honor him by refusing to engage, by staying in the middle, by using vague language, unwilling to speak extremely clear. We don't honor him by telling people to deny their lived experiences and shut up and preach or shut up and play or shut up and. We don't honor him by crying white tears about cancel culture when what is really happening is simply the consequences of your own racist behavior, also known as accountability. We don't honor him by preaching sermons on unity and forgiveness and reconciliation and reaching across the aisle and getting coffee with someone who voted differently than you, without starting with massive repentance for our complicity and the reason why we are here today, and acknowledging that getting coffee with someone who voted against your humanity is quite possibly off the table at this time. We do not honor him by criticizing an entire movement based upon one organization, not because there is nothing to critique but because that is easier, safer, than asking ourselves why the words Black Lives Matter demand to be said in the first place. We don't honor him by continuing to fund the campaigns and voting for racist people who uphold racist policies. 
We don't honor him by continuing to occupy the pews of churches who have had every opportunity to condemn, denounce, repent, and turn from white supremacy, and yet continue to deliberately choose not to. We don't honor him by acting like we would have marched with Dr. King while we sit at home doing absolutely nothing today. That is not what he fought and was murdered for. No, we honor Dr. King by continuing his work, by refusing to accept things that are unacceptable, by facing our history head on as people, Christians, and as a nation, by holding ourselves, other people, and systems accountable, by refusing to continue to be complicit in other people's suffering, by contending for a better, equitable world. We honor Dr. King by continuing in the way of true peacemaking because the way of a peacemaker is finding peace through working for justice. Dr. King closes his speech by saying, if peace is this, stagnant complacency, deadening passivity, I don't want peace. If peace means accepting second-class citizenship, I don't want it. If peace means keeping my mouth shut in the midst of injustice and evil, I don't want it. If peace means being complacently adjusted to a deadening status quo, I don't want peace. If peace means a willingness to be exploited economically, dominated politically, humiliated and segregated, I don't want peace. So in a nonviolent manner, we must revolt against this peace. Jesus says in substance, I will not be content until justice, goodwill, brotherhood, love, yes, the kingdom of God are established upon the earth. This is real peace. A peace embodied with the presence of positive good. The inner peace that comes as a result of doing God's will. Thank you. Before I begin, I want to share a brief story. My grandmother, uh, I asked her, what was it like, you know, in the 60s when they were marching? And she told me a story about how she got arrested with her six-year-old son. And I thought about it for a second. How would I act if I was a mother and had a six-year-old son? Would I really go out? But that was the cost. She said that it was either to sit home and agree with the suppression or to go out and say, I have a choice and I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm choosing to retain my power and make this decision. And so when I listen to the speeches, when I listen to the words, when I listen to these songs, it reminds me of that moment when my grandmother, many, many years removed, had the same conviction that if it went down today, she was going. She was going, and it was going to be one of those things where, okay, we all going, because I know I'm not going alone, and I birthed you. You got your D, my DNA inside of you. We're all going. So just remember, as we engage, as we engage in various levels of protest, whether it's actively on the lines, whether it's, hey, I'm going to make meals for the people who are protesting, or I'm going to give funds, we're part of an ecosystem, and that ecosystem 
demands us to show up. Amen. Can y'all clap? Joy! 
all I can say after that when I want to thank my sister Trish for that beautiful and eloquent song that she just sung. I also want to say a thank you to Pastor Chris and Strong Tower Bible Church for the opportunity to speak to you all today. Uh, if I could just speak on the, type, the topic, how we'll get over a mountaintop experience in the valley. Lord speak. And MLK Jr., last sermon, the mountaintop, Dr. King poetically spoke and prophetically spoke about speaking to God and asking him what age would he like to live in. Dr. King begins to say he starts in Egypt and with the Red Sea, wanting to see God's power and to see him move, but he says that I would not stop there. Then he goes to Greece and he says, I'm going there with the thought to speak to Plato, to Aristotle, to Socrates, but he says that I would not stop there. Next, he mentions the Roman Empire, the Renaissance period, or watching Martin Luther nail the 95 Theses, but he says, I would not stop there. He goes on to mentioning uh, Abraham signing the Pro Emancipation Proclamation and the Great Depression, but he says that I would not stop there. He finally tells God, he says, if you just allow me to see a few years into the second half of the 20th century, he'll be happy. This would have been his present day as he was speaking in, in Memphis the day before he died. But within this, he follows this saying by saying this right here. Not, now, that's a strange statement to make because this world is all messed up. The nation is sick. Trouble is in the land. Confusion is all around. He said, that's a strange statement. But I know somehow that only when it is dark can you see the stars. And he says, I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men in some strange way are responding. Something is happening in our world. Well, unfortunately, today, as we saw two weeks ago with the attempt coup, his words still reign true. This world is messed up. 
our nation is sick. There is trouble in the land. Confusion is still all around. Hate and racism is at its height since the civil rights movement. And images of the civil rights movement are eerily similar to the present day movement to show that black lives do matter. Over the last several years, hate has been normalized from the highest platform in this country, the president. Words of hate, division, elitism, sexism, and racism have been used so much publicly that it is normal to hate because someone does not share the same views as you because they do not look like you. It's normal to use the N-word again. It's normal to hate someone because of their religious beliefs, political views. Hate has been normalized, and this has happened because people have placed man before and above God. But let me just pause and tell you this with complete confidence. This type of mentality and spirit will not be present in the kingdom of God. It is of the devil. It is a demonic spirit. And people who use that language, especially so-called Christians or spiritual leaders, have forgotten or don't know that Christ said or commanded us to love one another as he has loved us. John 13, 34 and 35. So if we've learned anything over these last four years is that words do matter. But the question still lies, why did Dr. King choose to live in an age and a time that has so much oppression, that has so much opposition? And he says because he saw God moving on the people across the world saying we want to be free. Today is not just about being free but about liberty, about justice, about equity, about equality. For justice for Breonna Taylor still, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery and countless other people who have lost their lives or people have been brutalized by police. For law enforcement to show the same restraint to people of color that they showed those domestic terrorists during the insurrection of the Capitol building. To stop police brutality for people of color, especially African Americans, to be afforded the same God-given rights that were supposed to be established in the Constitution. For us to truly experience liberty and justice for all. That was his dream. This is what he was describing in his mountaintop speech that during dark times, like in the death of George Floyd, people would band together and fight against hate and injustice. Why would they band together? Because of pain. Pain is something that we cannot ignore. Pain is something that we all share. Pain is something that we all experience. So please don't ignore your pain or my pain. It's what we all have in common. But his hope was that this pain, whether seeing it or experience it, would push us to unite in love. Because God is love and love conquers all. 
And throughout his mountaintop message, Dr. King was describing his experience of the civil rights movement. And the more I began to think about this message, the more I realized that Dr. King was speaking from the valley. Y'all didn't catch me on that. Uh, even though it's called a mountaintop experience, he was in the valley. Uh, he was describing the climb. He was describing the fight. He was describing his experience. He was ex describing the struggle to continue to go forward despite constant death threats. To continue to go forward despite being thrown in jail. He continued to go forward despite an attempt on his life. Despite living in Jim Crow America, despite racism, white privilege, and white supremacy, Dr. King continued to fight. He continued to stay the course. Dr. King said, even though I'm living in some hard times and we have some difficult days ahead, I have hope. He says, yeah, I would like to live a long life, but I'm not concerned about that right now. I just want to do God's will. And like Moses before him, he says, I've seen the promised land. He says, I've seen the coming of the glory of the Lord. And he said that was enough for him. Because he saw the promises of God. And that gave him peace that gave him the strength to go forward to continue to fight to continue to stand to continue to preach and to share his dream he had a mountaintop experience in the valley dr king's dream was this was his vision for people to come together no matter your color no matter your nationality, no matter your economic status, no matter where you live, to come together that under dark days that our God-given light would shine, hoping that our love for humanity would push out hate. That was his faith. That was the promise that God has shown him. That was the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So how do we get over when people who say they love God begin to show it and love God more than they love man and continue to climb and to push forward and fight for justice, to continue to fight for equality, to continue to fight for equity despite the challenges, to continue to stand despite opposition. When when we get over, when we all choose to do what's right, despite the possibility of losing friends or family. When when we get over, when we place God first in our lives and choose to love and not hate. This mountaintop experience is about showing the love of God during these hard times. The greatest mountaintop experience came with Jesus Christ when he was transformed. And that's what we need, a transformation of our hearts to be the salt of the earth. We need to be the light. But before we do, we just need to be with Christ. We need to be with Christ to understand how to love like Christ.
So today I stand on the back of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as he was not afraid to death of death. I stand and I speak and I challenge us to do something about it. Enough of the talk. It's time for policy change. It's time for reform. And don't talk about it if you're not willing to stand or lift up your voice. We need systemic change. We need to call out these spiritual leaders, whether here in Franklin, Nashville, Tennessee, in the Capitol building, wherever they might be across this country who continue to divide and spread hate. We need to call out politicians, media, people in positions of power, friends and family. Turn them in just like these young people have been turning in their families that they seen at the Capitol building. Continue to call out racism. Continue to call them out. Those who choose to be silent, impartial, divide, or continue to spread hate. Don't use Dr. King's words of peace, of love, and a dream, but still support those who use these demonic names in God's name to spread hate. It's time to stop, talk, stop talking about what we're going to do and just do it. It's time to stop being afraid. It's time to speak up. It's time for us to love. It's time for us to come together. It's time for us to be an advocate for the voiceless. It's time for us to be more Christ-like. Jesus Christ was the first civil rights activist, the first social justice activist. He was the first activist for all mankind, and we are still alive because of his work, because he was not afraid. It's time for us to truly pick up our cross, and how do you know if you picked up your cross? When you start getting threats. When you start having opposition. When they try and silence you. When you start seeing the sacrifice that you've given, that's when you know you picked up your cross. But what we're talking about here today, it is a choice. It is a choice to hate just like it is a choice to love. It is a choice to pick up your cross or to leave it on the ground. It is a choice to spread hate or to spread love. We have the power of death and life in our tongues. It is a choice. And the time is now because the dream will not come to pass until we are under love and destroy this demonic spirit of hate. That is how we would get over. When we run and not get weary. And we walk and not faint. Thank you. Peace unto you, my sisters and brothers, in the name of Jesus Christ, as we continue on in our movement for today, we ask that you lend us our heart, your mind, and your spirit. On May 8, 1967, 
Martin Luther King Jr. granted an interview to veteran NBC correspondent Sander Vanekor and made it clear that his famous speech had turned into a nightmare. The interview happened just three and a half years after King's powerful normalcy never again sermon, more commonly known as the I Have a Dream speech. Thanks to King's now in comic improvisions, his dear friend, gospel singer Mahalia Jackson, exhorted him to tell them about the dream, Martin. Tell them about the dream, Martin. Today, I just want to share with you that the nightmare can become the dream because it's been a long time coming. The nightmare still can become the dream, but it's been a long time coming. Under the guise, I should have never watched One Night in Miami last night because I was gripped by Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, Jim Brown, and Cassius Clay, a.k.a. Muhammad Ali. I love the way that Regina King finally normalized Malcolm X, who was one of my favorite writers, favorite people in the world, and so is Dr. Martin Luther King, Absalom Jones, Nat Turner, and other abolitionists who you never heard and will never hear about. But I want to read this to you. You deplore this demonstration that a prison had taken place in Birmingham, but I'm sorry that your statement did not express a similar concern for the conditions that brought us to this place. I am sure each of you want to go beyond the superficial social analysis who looks merely at the effects and does not grapple with the underlying causes. I would not hesitate to say that it is unfortunate that the so-called demonstrations that are taking place in Birmingham at this time, but I would say in more emphatic terms that it is even unfortunate that the power, the white power structure of the city has left the Negro community with no other alternative. Spoken by Dr. Martin Luther King from the letter from the Birmingham jail, something that should be um, reputable in every school and institution in the United States of America. I'm more upset over a couple more things that every day for one day out the year you hear many people quoting and realizing what they think they know about the drum major for justice, the one and only Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. For 364 days out the year you are silenced in police brutality, the work of minimum wages, the power structure of women not being able to take care of their own bodies, the reluctancy to refute and refuse a Republican Party who supports a president that keeps people down like we did over the past four years. But this isn't new because every time there's black progress, there must be a white power structure of extremism that come. We did not get here in 2016. This started in 2008 with the presidency of the one Barack Hussein Obama. Every year in communities across the nation, we celebrate the life of what we call, the, in prophetic circles, the drum major for justice, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That should be filled with his prophetic words of justice, but it has been diluted into meager food giveaways, community cleanups, and most sanitized celebrations rooted in unity without accountability. And yet we stand at a precipice in America that we haven't faced since April 12th 1861, when the Civil War started over slavery. 
So today, I would love to leave you a few MLK quotes and some life, love, and liberation for your souls. Most prophetic leaders are not well on days like today. We find ourselves sick to our stomach as we watch black and silent white leaders in and out the church attempt to regurgitate the words of Dr. King today and upholding the injustice the other days of the year. So I want to leave you another witness of a prophet by the name of the Reverend Dr. William Barber, who spoke to the governor of Tennessee, one of the people who found out on this week that he's like to wear a few years ago Confederate uniforms, but he's not a Confederate. I know someone in here, Dr. Chris Williams, who asked him to his face, yo, do you got any skeletons in your closet? And all of a sudden, the uniform comes out. But he's not only a racist in that sense, his church is a racist because his pastor was at the Capitol. So let's just read how Dr. Barber in 2019 handled Governor Lee. Politicians can't say you love Dr. King and say you stand for love and unity, but then refuse to support his agenda. Right, Governor Lee? I mean, since you came, right, Congressman? Let me show you what I mean, Governor. Dr. King would have never stood for a wall to separate people. We need to be spending money to give health care to everybody. Who in here believes, like Teddy Roosevelt, a Republican, that everyone should have free health care? Now, if you can't stand up for that, then don't say you love Dr. King. And preachers, don't just think I'm just talking about the politicians. Just because you can talk about it from the pulpit, then you're going to sit back and feel like we can find you on your pastor's anniversary, but we can't find you in the streets with these young folk protesting police brutality. If you are a preacher of the gospel and asking your people to tithe, but you are not fighting for them to have a living wage, you are a liar. If every senator and congressman can get free health care, why can't every citizen in this country do the same? How is that that you don't want people to have what you have? Reverend Dr. William Barber, January 21st, they didn't print that in the Tennessean. You got to go find that. If you are upset about these words, then you definitely won't like the words of the first drum major for justice, Mr. Jesus Christ. Matthew 23 is an example of a corrupt church leadership and what we call Pharisaism in local circles. We call these the eight woes, and in verse 23, Jesus makes this assertion. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you give a tenth of your mint and your deal and your cumin and have neglected the more weightier matters of justice, mercy, and faith. These are the primary things that you should have done without neglecting the others. This is a version of Jesus you don't like to hear about the same way Dr. King is sanitizing whitewash and the same way Jesus is sanitizing whitewash. It's the same way. And we love this quote, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands in times of challenge and controversy. You saw this in Mike Pence. That the president of the United States put a hit out on him with a mob, and he still would not invoke the 25th Amendment. I'm just here, and I'm about done. I'm, I promise to you, I'm on my way out of here. But I know a lot of cowards like that, because a lot of them in churches that I used to attend, in churches that I know right now, because you're mad about what the president did, and your pastor is the worst person in America. Your church leadership Whenever you get too black, then the hoods and the crosses don't come out in your front yard. They come out in the pulpits. 
Oh, I'm not done. Dr. King was rooted in a history and discipline that started in 1787 from a brother by the name of Richard Allen, a former enslaved free person with a group of other former enslaved Africans who were praying at the altar of St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church one Sunday. And the white leadership came in, the first multiracial church in Philadelphia, and said, y'all can't pray down here. Y'all need to go up to the African corner or the Negro pew because that's why y'all belong. So even their God had an issue. And in good fashion, um, um, Richard Allen, Absalom Jones, and these other former slaves packed up out the church, took their money, their time, and their talent, went out and got their own building. And in 1787, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said they can own their own because even in their churches, we can't own what God given us. Because of the racism of the white church, they led out and became a free African society. And Allen's preaching centered around themes of abolition, colonization, education, and temperance. The AME church had these principles in the mission of their church. Number one, preaching the gospel. Number two, feeding the hungry. Number three, clothing the naked. Number four, housing the homeless. Number five, cheering the fallen. Number six, providing jobs for the jobless. Number seven, encouraging thrift and economic advancement. Number eight, administering to the needs of those in prison, hospital, nursing homes, asylums, and mental institutions. Senior citizens' homes, caring for the sick, the shut-in, and mentally and socially disturbed. This is the DNA of Dr. King, and this is why he was murdered. I just referred to the creation of tension as a part of the work of the nonviolent resistor. This may sound rather shocking, but I must confess that I'm not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly worked and preached against violent tension, but there's a type of constructive, nonviolent tension that is necessary for growth. Just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create tension in the mind so that the individuals could rise from bondage to myths and have truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, we must see the need of having nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men to rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding in brotherhood. This is Dr. King in the letter from the Birmingham jail. And this is the genesis of black liberation theology, which has always had an abusive domestic relationship within itself and the church. And it's always attempted to separate the tension between the sacred and the secular. What do you mean, Walter? I mean... You want to sing how we got over, but kick down Kanye West and Jay-Z's Hello Martin, Hello Coretta, Sweet Malcolm, Sweet Betty, Sweet Brother Joseph, Sweet Mother Mary, Sweet Jesus. We made it in America. You want us to sing, Jesus, keep me near the cross, but sometimes we need to be, we go be all right. I know you want to stay humble, but sometimes you got to get mouthy. The church has been the genesis and the epitome of white supremacy here in America. And you've allowed and accepted that black churches carry the weight of your sins. Dr. King is here admonishing us not to do it. Now, whatever the, all these Republicans calling for unity, 
I got excited on this week because I found out my former first brigade commander would be doing the assessment of who got into the Capitol building. And if any of you are involved in it, I'm going to tell you right now, you is in trouble because the raging Cajun is coming and you are not going to get away from this one because when he comes through, he's going to say you don't get stuck on stupid because he's not a fool. As he said in his commentary, he said, how is it that I was a three-star general, walked in the Capitol, and they took my cigarette lighter? And you mean to tell me some hillbillies and rednecks ran up in the Capitol? No, they were let in. And this is how most of us do with white supremacy Jesus. We let him in. Come here. Come here. Come here. So before we get to the unity, don't call me. Before we get to the prayer, don't call me. Go call your normal slave preachers and ask them because they are waiting for a plan. I don't need your plan. I don't need your plan. Black people, listen to me. You don't need their platforms. God will give you a place if your voice is to be heard. Chris Williamson, no, that's why he said, yes, he will, because I was denied of option to speak somewhere. And God says, sometimes your voice is not needed in places where I ain't seen you. Watch this. Watch this. And we done. I'm gone. Uh, here we go. Number one, white people, we're no longer taking relationship without these steps. Number one, you need to learn some good repentance. Your repentance is necessary don't come telling me I didn't own slaves. You benefit. You benefit from it. You, you let your child go to school and write stories about how, what it means for black people to be slaves. You benefit from it. You still have the wealth that you've been holding through generations in your family. and Y'all never gave us reparations. Number one, no more weak repentance. How? Why can't you have weak repentance? Because they refuse to get revelation. Dr. Chris Winston told me this one day, God is not going to release any more revelation in your life, Walter, until you do what God told you to do with the first one. Number one, get you some repentance. Number two, you're going to need some good revelation. Number three, then we can repair. And sometimes reparation look like funding. Reparations should be in the form of monetary equity. Dr. King was in Memphis when he was murdered fighting for the wage of the sanitation workers. And the sanitation worker would walk around with shirts say, I am a man because the United States, as they sent our black soldiers over to Vietnam, and then they came home and they still called them nigger. They still had to go to the back doors. And you're going to tell me something? But the first time I was called out my name, a man from Pensacola, Florida, was in the United States Army by a white guy. Don't tell me about the flag. Because the same flag that y'all were mad at Colin Kaepernick, there was a Confederate that flew. Ain't it amazing, Pastor Herbert, that the American flag, the Confederate flag, the Trump flag, the Proud Boy flag, couldn't we find all them in the crowd? With a sign that said, Jesus saves. And then a video release that found out that they went into the desk of the senators and them jokers had prayer meeting at the, I mean, I mean, Cleo, who they praying to? Matthew chapter 2, we have a problem. <laughs> we have a problem, I promise I'm out. Matthew chapter 2 is the most problematic scripture in the Bible. Because they say this right here. We need to unify and follow Jesus. I ask this question. 
Which Jesus are we talking about? Are we talking about Brad Pitt Jesus? Or are we talking about the Jesus in Matthew chapter 2 when Joseph was dreaming and God told Joseph while a tyrannical Trump follower, Herod the Great, was trying to kill all the children in Israel, he said, take that baby, take your wife, and take them where? Africa. So they're going to take a blonde-headed, blue-eyed baby and send them into an African nation to hide from a tyrant. And now we have issues when I stand up and now I'm divisive. You've been divisive your whole discipleship. That's why you first thing you want to do when you can't control somebody, you cut their money off. Number one, repent. Number two, revelation. Number three, reparation. Then we can get to restoration. See, and this is the problem in the church, especially in America. We want to rush from repentance directly to restoration. But we don't want to deal with that stuff in the middle because anybody who's ever been in a relationship know that the middle is messy. The middle messy. And, we don't, and even in the black church, we don't want to deal with the mess. What we found goodness in is putting folk out the church. Um, and so, how does the dream work? Last but not least, the comment is, I am ashamed to be a pastor. Singers, athletes, comedians, movie stars, who do not stand each week, voice is more powerful than the pulpit of the church. Dr. King, when you joined the church from 1867 to the 1970s, when you took the right hand of fellowship, you also took the fellowship of the National Association of the Advancement of Colored People. My grandmama said it this way. You couldn't just join the church without joining the world. And now we get into our multiracial, multicultural churches that has no black or brown and women in leadership. And then we start quoting Dr. King, and this is it. Dr. King would not be where he was without two people. And I'm going to leave one was a homosexual by the name of Bayard Rustin, B-A-Y-A-R-D-R-U-S-T-I-N. He could not speak at the March on Washington because the CIA had a picture of he and Dr. King and they were going to say Dr. King was gay. So this brother Herbert stepped down from speaking even though he was the organizer just to make sure that the movement goes forward. The black church don't do that. Old men are sitting in pulpits and the churches are dying. One of the greatest things happened is somebody stepped down out their church and it's a lot of y'all need to follow suit. And the second brother is A. Philip Randolph. These brothers are the ones who started the March on Washington. But if you don't know Absalom Jones, Richard Allen, A. Philip Randolph, and Bayard Rustin, then you definitely don't know Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the one who graduated from Morehouse at 15, got his doctorate at 17. You don't know him if all you know about black people is they allow you to be what you are. In the words of my favorite movie, Tombstone, I am not your huckleberry. I'm not your huckleberry. When you're looking for a huckleberry, there are some huckleberries who are shucking jive for you. I'm not him. 
I'm not him, Mike Spartan, because I'm problematic to your theology. So is Dr. Chris Williamson. So is Cleon Harrison. So is Pastor Brian Herbert. So is Courtney Cocter. So you isolate us away. And sometimes isolation is the impact that God wants in your life. The dream has become a nightmare. But a change go come. On November 3rd, the change came. It didn't happen directly on the 3rd. You had to go to sleep. And good preachers know that late early in the morning. They would say that late coming for it in the midnight hour. They start praying and some stuff starts. So I went to bed. He was ahead. When I got up, he was up with a press conference telling everybody that he had won. But the greatest thing to that was not that Biden had caught him down like the meme on Facebook. It was the places that God chose to show America what the black vote can mean. Number one, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 70% African-American. They walked them down in Wisconsin. Wayne County, Detroit, 86% African-American walked them down. Uh, then they went over into uh, uh, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, 70 to 80% African-American walked them down. And lo and behold, the capital of Stacey Abrams, where Keisha Lance Bottoms is the mayor of Atlanta, Georgia, where she does graduate from the Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University, where they got together and got and walked him down in that election. Five African-American cities impacted the election, and you got ignorant Negroes talking about, I ain't voting because it don't matter. Pull it back in, Pastor Walter. Okay, it didn't just end there because on January 5th, God get gooder and gooder. I'm going to encourage somebody here today. I'm sorry. I went a little low. God always never just gives you this. He always got a bad cup and always give you. He said he prepared table before you in the presence of your enemies. Now, watch this. Your enemies were still out fighting for that election. 60 judges, most Republicans said, fool, ain't nobody cheated. He on the phone call, can I get 11,000 my day to more than votes? Y'all got some votes for me? Yo, yo, Reifenberger, can I get my 11,780? I just, that's all I need, Courtney. Oh, watch this, watch this, watch this. In the midst of a Senate run where they stole the election from Stacey Abrams, now they have to deal with her. Come here. Come here, y'all better stop listening to these ignorant folks. Watch this, watch this. Uh, 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 Atlanta was the epicenter of the world political scene. And God used the fool in the White House to make sure his word came to pass. See, like Pharaoh, he said he hardened Pharaoh, hardened Exodus. He hardened that fool, hardened them because he wanted to destroy whatever there's reformation. There must be God's word that come to pass. You missed it. You missed it on this MLK 2021, we ain't crying. We are celebrating about the dream that MLK talked about in Washington, D.C. Ain't it amazing the same folks who stormed the Capitol were where he left his words at, and now they went and stormed it. Now it's 21,000 troops. They're waiting on, they waiting on them, too. Go on in there. Try Press your luck. Go ahead. Uh, uh. And then the black vote went, and then they had to go back to Georgia. And now... Ebenezer Baptist Church that was formerly pastored by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. When this guy started running, 
Nobody even paid attention to the church him was pastoring. Watch this. Watch this. Dr. Reverend Raphael Warnock is pastoring Ebenezer Baptist Church. So the mantle of Dr. King that was laid in D.C. and in Atlanta has now fallen on the voters in Atlanta. Not all black, but some white too, because if it had not been for our white allies standing up against racism, we would not be here today. That in this celebration, Sam, this ain't about Dr. King be having a dream. It's about the dream coming to pass because Mitch McConnell is not over the Senate no more. 50-50, vote broke by an Asian-African woman by the name of Kamala Harris. The Congress is now in charge with Nancy Pelosi and the president and the vice president-elect is Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. So now y'all going to get 1400 more dollars? Celebrate the Lord. Pay your tithe. Celebrate. Y'all better learn how to get your celebrating in when you can. Because you ain't going to always have these good days. And I can see Dr. King smiling down from heaven. He's locked down and on with my homeboy named Chad with Bozeman. And when Paula White started preaching, I see victory in the name of victory. Chapman looked up and she started calling angels from Africa. But Chapman and old Mark locked on to say, Chad said, God, can I get back my wings and my halo for a second? Because I got some business to handle down there on earth. Because she's calling from these angels from Africa. And God say go ahead Chad get your uniform back on he steps back in the room and the black panther uniform comes on he steps out comes down anoints everybody in the crowd say don't y'all go vote for that fool he go to angels not only was he there when Joe and Kamala he made sure John also and Reverend Dr. Raphael walking down one also be careful when you're calling up our angels because they mean on your side because most of us carry the social justice banner because that's what Jesus stood for. God bless you. God keep you is my prayer. May you have a wonderful MLK 2021. And once again, watch the inauguration from your house. Stay out these streets. Everywhere in Martin's hometown, he saw the signs white only. His mother said these signs were in all southern cities in the United States. Every time Martin read the words, he felt bad until he remembered what his mother told him. You are as good as anyone. In church, he sang hymns. He he read from the Bible. He listened to his father preach. These words made him feel good. When I grow up, I'm going to get big words too. 
Martin grew up. He became a minister just like his father, and he used the big words he had heard as a child from his parents and from the Bible, everyone can be great. What a beautiful service we have had. I want to just close us out with some of Dr. King's most famous words from that beautiful speech that many of you know when he said, with this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. I'm holding a small, very, very small little stone of hope But I want that to symbolize that for many of you today, you may feel that your hope is the size of this small stone. And I want you to know that that is enough. Dr. King's words are comforting, but they're also challenging because as he spoke them decades ago, there's still so much work we have yet to do. So I pray that today you have been encouraged. I hope that you've been made uncomfortable. I hope that some of the words shared have challenged you, have pricked you to the core, have caused you to step back and reflect, have caused you to repent, have called you to the stone of hope that ultimately is in our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you will not lose hope. God is still on the move. And Dr. King's work continues with each of us. We are the dream. We can walk it out one step, one day at a time. Thank you for joining us today. Now go out and live with hope. Let's do the work together. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our hope, that our hope in you does not disappoint. Lord, some of us acknowledge today that we've placed our hope in people And they have disappointed us. Lord, we've placed our hope in all different places. And we've realized that those things and those people will fail us. But we acknowledge, oh God, that you do not disappoint. And Lord, we thank you that as Dr. King's hope was built on you, Jesus, your blood, your righteousness. I pray that our hope would be steadfast in you as we do the work that you have called us to, Lord. I pray that you would give us greater imagination to know where we can work. I pray that you would give us great dreams. I pray that the Wyatt Cocktars of today would inspire us. I pray, God, that the white allies like Courtney Cocktar would encourage us. I pray that whatever our color of skin, our culture, our calling. I pray, God, that we would do the work that you have called us to do. Show us what that looks like. Help us not to compare to anyone else, but to be focused and fixed on you, Jesus. Our hope is in you today. We thank you for the work of our brother, Dr. King, and we will continue his good work in your name, Jesus. Amen. God bless you.